the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom. Steve, um, I met Steve maybe five years ago, six years ago at a men's retreat in Nashville, Tennessee as the usual suspects. And um, it was an unbelievable experience for me. And uh, Steve was one of the powers of example that was there. And, you know, I don't know. I, I would love to say that Steve is a great friend of mine. I've, I've maybe seen him six times. But every time we connect, you know, it's that unbelievable phenomenon in AA that when we connect, we have a, a really good, unbelievable relationship. And uh, so it's my honor and privilege to introduce Steve. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Steve Lee. I'm an alcoholic. Thought I had this timer set. You'll just have to uh, depend on my good sense of timing. Uh, uh, the 5:30 walk could be in jeopardy. Uh, <laughs> listen, I'm, I'm thrilled to uh, to be here this weekend, and, uh, and and for you guys to invite me to be a, be a part of what's going on here. I, I, really appreciate it. It started with Spencer picking me up at the airport and, uh, and the great conversation we had on the way over here. And uh, it was uh, a treat for me to, to hear that Matthew was going to uh, be here and be able to introduce me and, and, uh, and have that connection. Uh, I've got a couple of great friends uh, from my home group uh, uh, back in Nashville, uh, uh, Tammy and, and Rachel here. They wanted me to, to let you know they're here in spite of me, not because of me. And, uh, 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 and my friend Matt uh, has been around most of the weekend, too, from Nashville. That's in town. He, he had an obligation this afternoon. And then I have so many other wonderful friends in the room and, and people who just uh, have met and mean so much to me and, uh, in my journey in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, so, so it's an absolute privilege for me to be here. Uh, it says on the program... Uh, that I will uh, speak to steps uh, 10 and 11. Uh, however, having been here all weekend, I know none of the other speakers have been held captive to the topic on their page. <laughs> uh, 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 I say that jokingly because the truth is, you know, if, if, uh, if I speak to you about, about my experience and about, about the spiritual journey of Alcoholics Anonymous, Whatever number you put in front of that is almost always going to fit in some description. And, uh, and, and what you've invited me to do is not to instruct or, or teach you about a step. I, I, I certainly would be out of my depth doing that. But to do what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is, is share our experience. I'll share my experience. I will try to, to talk a little bit about, about what, what AA seems to say about these steps, because as has been made uh, uh, so abundantly and accurately clear, that's where the clear-cut directions are. That's, that's where the, the basic text is. That's where the guidelines for living are. And, uh, 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 but, you know, it, it says uh, in our book when it's talking about, it says that each of us in our own language and from our own point of view talks about how we establish a relationship with God. 
And uh, it says there may be a wide variation in the way each of us approaches and conceives of that power. And I would suggest that, that, that likewise what, what I'm going to do to the best of my ability is share in my own language and from my own point of view my experience, my personal experience, both in the understanding and the application uh, of steps 10 and 11, both as I came upon them initially and, and kind of where they are now. There's a great thing about Alcoholics Anonymous and, and about these spiritual principles which serve as the guideline for my life is that uh, is we don't leave them behind. We don't, we don't outgrow them. They don't change. The, 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 the language doesn't change. The, the uh, premise of a step or a principle doesn't change. But I continue to have, hopefully, a deeper understanding. Not a better, not more accurate, not, a, not that I was wrong ten years ago if I saw it a different way, but I'm always having a current experience. And step 10 really speaks to that current experience. And step 11 really speaks, I think, to that current experience. Because it's, it's kind of what now, you know? It's kind of what now, right after those night step promises, uh, 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 it says, uh, uh, you know, that, that I'm going to embark on this, on, to continue while I go about cleaning up the past. I'm going to continue to look for any new mistakes. And I keep looking. If I make one, I'm going to let you know any new mistakes as I go along. So there's not even a time gap between the moment I begin the process of looking at making amends and doing that. I'm also supposed to, as I go about that, immediately begin looking for new mistakes. Because the truth is, I start making them immediately. Uh, There's hardly a real time lag between my last mistake and my next one. And the tenth step has me kind of paying attention to that, you know. Because if I don't... If I don't, then, 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 then they will sort of build up like residue. And uh, um, so I'll, I'll start by just kind of, I, I want to confirm my alcoholism. Uh, 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 you know, I, I've got, and, and, and what you can assume, and, and, and I'll just ask you to make a presumption as I start here kind of talking about 10 and 11, that what you've heard from the other speakers is, is in their own language and from their own point of view, kind of mirrors what happened to me. Some of the experiences are different, but I've got the relationship with alcohol that Carl talked about. I've got that, that phenomenon of craving. I've got that, you know, allergy. I didn't know that before I got to AA, you know. I did, that, was, that was a huge piece of information that I was allergic to alcohol. Because as it says in the doctor's opinion, it explains that for which I could not otherwise account. It explained, and now, you know, I never knew that, that I had the phenomenon of craving. I was never in the bar somewhere and about the third drink, nudged the guy next to me. I don't know about you, pal, but that phenomenon of craving's kicking in on me. <laughs> Whoa, lack of power is my dilemma. <laughs> I didn't have any of that language. I didn't know that. I just thought I changed my mind. And I get here against my will, not wanting to be here, having been uh, convicted of my sixth DUI and done a plea bargain that sent me both to jail and to uh, uh, drug and alcohol rehabilitation, where they introduced me to the problem I had and then took me out to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step programs that graciously let me come in and others, even when I didn't want to be there and even when I didn't know how to act, and even when I was probably a bit of a blight on that particular meeting, 
But see, you didn't expect me showing up knowing the rules. You didn't expect me to know how AA works before I get there. You gave me a little time and some people gave me some private instruction outside the meeting uh, that I might conduct myself in a way that was respectful of what other people were there to do. But I was made welcome. And then having bought into this problem that I've got and recognizing that I'm in a trap I can't spring and got a problem I can't solve, I became grudgingly open-minded to the prospect of step two, that a power greater than myself would be required. Something other than me. I didn't know what it looked like. I wasn't a religious guy, not a religious guy. Didn't have a concept of God, or at least not one that I could articulate. I often say, I don't know if I was agnostic or, a, or, or atheist, but I was at least apathetic. I just paid no attention. I was uninvested in any of that, and I gave it no thoughtful consideration, except when you brought it up, it made me uncomfortable. But I know I can't solve it. And then I land around at step three and, 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 and had no idea coming up on step three the first time the magnitude of the decision that was talked about. And as Peter, as Peter discussed it and as Katie went on to describe today, what, what am I copping to? What am I, what am I doing when I do that? What is, so because that self that we will talk about, I don't realize that I'm, when I turn my will in my life over the care of God, I don't, I don't really know what that means. I, I told my sponsor, Frank, you know, I, at the time, I said, Frank, I, I, I don't get it. I don't buy in. I said, let go and let God. That's a nice bumper sticker. But, uh, uh, but I, don't, I don't think I'm, gonna, I'm involved with that. He said, hell, Steve, just let go and let anybody. And, uh, uh, you know, just let go. Because that's the first thing I have to do, and, and the book says, to, to be convinced that a life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Me running my life. Because I have said in the first step that my life is unmanageable. Now, I misunderstood that for years. I mean, I, didn't, I knew what it said. I just misapplied it. It says my life is unmanageable. I keep thinking my life is difficult to manage. That it's hard to manage. And that the solution is to become a better manager. That, that, that it's, it, you know, if I get to my car when I get back to the airport and the power steering is out when I'm driving home, that's a hard car to drive. But I can do it if I concentrate and work hard and give all my effort. But if the battery's dead, it's just undrivable. It's not going anywhere no matter how much I read about car batteries, you know, no, ma- no, no matter how much I recognize that a car battery is going to be necessary. But I'm going to have to go get the necessary power. I'm going to have to jump this sucker off to get anywhere. And here in Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I don't realize the depth of the decision that I'm kind of walking into. In fact, it's a trick. It's, it's only after the prayer that it tells me to think long and hard before taking the prayer. And, uh, uh, uh. To be truthful, uh, our book is full of bait and switch moments. And, uh, uh, because I think the people in AA know, you know, I'm not going to read ahead. You know, you know, what if they had left on page 164 is the first time you guys tell me we realize we know only a little. <laughs> I do the best I can with, the, with an inventory, and my inventory was like the one I think Bob talked about. My inventory was a confessional, and it was unbelievably unburdening, cathartic. Uh, to share those things with someone uh, that I had never been able to share. And, and there were, I didn't share everything, but I, I shared things I had never told anybody, and that was, that was a huge unburdening. It was a relief, 
but perhaps not recovery. But I think it's, it's part of the process. I, I'm just, you know, when it says we cease fighting anything and anyone, I, part of that is I just don't nitpick it near the way that I used to. Because what I want to have is, a, is an experience, and I've gone through a lot of my time in AA trying to articulate it, trying to, to in fact, I wanted you to have my experience, but to validate my experience, <laughs> to make me feel good about me. And so if you describe it a different way, I don't get too worked up, particularly if you are getting the results you want. You know, my, I, when I went through a Pentecostal stage in AA and, and at six years sober, and my sponsor, you know, a guy named Joe S. at the time pulled me up. He said, Steve, relax, pal. He says, not everybody wants what you want in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, fewer people still want what you have. <laughs> And there are thousands of meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous going on every day without your input. (laughs) I am here. My home group, backroom group, meets on Saturday and Sunday morning, and I'm here. Odds are they went ahead and met this morning in my absence. (laughs) There was probably even a buzz around the room. Uh, uh, Some mic time opened up in that meeting. I did a couple of amends, which were, which were kind of the apology that our book says is insufficient, but it was huge. It was huge for me to go look at a few people, my wife and my daughter and my mother, and say, I'm sorry. You know, our book says a, a mere mumbling, I'm sorry, isn't sufficient, but it doesn't mean it can't be part of the overall amends. There's a difference in me going, I'm, look, I'm sorry, get off my back, than a true re- heartfelt recognition that I am sorry that I hurt you. I am sorry that I let you down. And then I land at the, at the tenth step. And, and if I go to my sponsor and ask what, what, what I've done at most of these others, which is, okay, what now? And the short answer of the tenth step is, well, just keep doing what you've been doing. Continue to take personal inventory and when wrong, promptly admit it. And ease on over there toward the 11th step and, and, and seek through prayer and meditation to improve your conscious contact with God as you understand it. Get going on that. How do I arrive at step 10? How do I know I'm there? Well, I mean, you know, because I, I do sometimes read ahead. One of the things that I think that I will confuse, and I, again, none of this is good or bad necessarily from my point of view. It, it is kind of my shared experience. Because I've said I've taken a step doesn't mean I've taken it. And sometimes I've taken a step before I get to it and didn't know I took it. Because, I, because there's been an experience that happened. So when I land at the tenth step, it suggests, as, as was read, that, uh, 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 that I want to continue to look for this selfishness, this dishonesty, this resentment, this fear. Keep an eye out for that stuff, Steve. You know, when I was a, a little boy in the south and out playing, you know, in, in the yard and come back in at night, my mother would make me and my brother strip down, and she would check us for ticks. Because if you don't take a look, you might not know the ticks there. And actually, you can go quite a while with a tick bite with perhaps no ill effect. But after a while, it just might get infected. And it just might begin to cause a bigger problem. Having the tick and getting it picked off that night would pretty much alleviate that problem. But if I'm not paying attention and checking for ticks, they can begin to build up. I can have a problem. So you're just asking me, hey, take a quick look. 
Ain't we selfish today? Dishonest, resentful, afraid. Then you got the other questions that are over there, kind of in that end of day review. I, I don't get too hung up, you know. Is that a tenth step or is that an eleventh step? I gotta say, if I'm asking any of those questions, I, I have really raised my game big time from before I got here. Uh, so I'm not getting hung up on the number that's in front of it. It's am I am I engaged in the process? And, and is there a bit of self-reflection? And boy, there's a dangerous moment for an alcoholic. I have just come through these steps where I have admitted after I have stopped drinking, after I have moved alcohol to the side, I have said that the root of my problem is selfishness and self-centeredness, that this obsession with self, this preoccupation with self, this self-driven life is my problem. And then you say, and by the way, Steve, think about yourself a little bit every day. I got the kind of same relationship with self I do with alcohol. I get the phenomenon of craving when I think about me a little bit. I'll pretty soon, I will turn that in. So, so, so I, the directions are just, you know, they're, they're kind of clear. They're just hard for me to follow sometimes. I've got to be careful not to turn self-examination into self-obsession. I've got to be careful to make it a... a uh, uh, a positive uh, uh, experience rather than just look to flog myself. It is that fact-finding and fact-facing business. Hey, hey, Steve, were you selfish today? Yes. Well, how? Maybe I can talk to somebody, call my sponsor, call, call a buddy of mine. You know, maybe I do it the next morning, depending on how bad it's weighing on me that night. I'll call, I got a couple of guys uh, other than my sponsor and some guys I call, I talk to Carl a lot, I call my buddies uh, Butch and Danny a lot, and I'll call Danny and I'll say, man, you will never believe what I did or what I said. And he said, I will have no problem believing what you did or said. (laughs) But I arrive at step 10 and it suggests some things have happened for me. It suggests that, uh, uh, that regarding alcohol, I now react sanely and normally. And uh, uh, so sanely and normally for me means that I'm not confused about the fact that I can drink anything at all. Sanely and normally, it says we're in that position of neutrality. I tell you, it's the, I'll tell you what's not neutral for me. Here's what... what looked like for me when I would go someplace where other people were drinking during the first few years of my sobriety. I had a good reason to be there. It might be a, it might be a restaurant. It might be a, a business or social event where other people are drinking. One feeling is I'm not going to drink. I'm not thirsty. But I'm really disappointed. I'm, I, but I'm feeling self-pity. I'm feeling like I'm missing something. It is amazing to have the relationship with alcohol that I had and feel like giving it up is giving something up. I mean, I was arrested. I, I, I mean, you know, you guys, we all got our own story, whatever that looks like. And, and most of the damage is internal. Most of those feelings are, are given away of, of integrity and, and, and who I am and the person I want to be. And then I go, hey, but I hate to give it up. You know, I, was, I met a guy one night. I picked him up at the airport. Uh, I never met this guy. It was going to be a business uh, 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 deal. And he was coming in. We were going to go to lunch. We were going to make a sales call. We were going to go to dinner. And he's going to get on a flight the next morning. He flies in. I pick him up. We go to lunch. He has a few drinks, uh, a few beers at lunch. He's ordering about his third beer. He noticed I'm not drinking. He, nothing about AA. He says, Steve, I hope it doesn't bother you that I'm having this beer. 
I said, man, it doesn't bother me at all. I said, fact is, if that's going to make you more effective on this sales call, I'm buying. You know, I, I'd, I'd really like this to go well. And uh, 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 then we did our business, and we went out to dinner that night. He started drinking at dinner a little bit, and I'm still not drinking. Nothing, no mention of AA or Alcoholics Anonymous or being an alcoholic. And, but he just begins to ask some questions, and he begins to tell me about He says he's in trouble at work because of his drinking, about to lose his job. He said his wife's been on him. Said his wife uh, uh, had her brother come over and talk to him, who was in AA. And, uh, and I thought, man, the, uh, the brother-in-law 12-step call's got to be the deepest cut of all, isn't it? That's, that's got to be tough. And, uh, and I just talked to him, and I said, well, I, I said, you know what? I, and, and you guys know that this is a trick question. But I just said to him, I said, you know, since you're having all that trouble, I said, why don't you just stop drinking? He hung his head for a second and he looked up and he says, you know what, Steve? He says, I'm afraid I'll quit and I really didn't have to. And I get that. I mean, I get that to him. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, maybe, maybe that's not, maybe I'll get better at it, you know. All the stuff we talk about, he was just doing what we say in AA. He just didn't want to quit five minutes before the miracle. uh, (laughs) Before he could find some new miracle of control. But now I'm over here in this tenth step, and hey, I'm in. So so the other thing, after I feel a little bit of self-pity, there's another thing that happens to me sometimes, and that's self-righteousness. See, these manifestations of self are showing back up. And that's self-righteousness. Look at him. Look, at that's about his fifth drink. That poor son of a... I hope one day you can find what I found in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. And then there's the neutrality. Then there's that where, where I, am, I am unaffected, I am unimpacted by my not drinking and by you drinking. That can, that can get comfortable. I'm not always there, but that's a comfortable place to be. And then it used to bother me that the book said, but, but uh, uh, that I've gotten here without any thought or effort on my part. So what, do you, what do you mean? I've been working steps. They use the word work in front of this. I've been working hard in AI. But see, I, it says this new attitude toward liquor. But I've not been working on my attitude toward liquor in AA. I've been working on building a relationship with a higher power, and my attitude comes with no thought or effort towards that attitude. I didn't learn more about it. You know what? I read something. You know what? Finally, I've got a piece of information that, that is totally changing my view of alcohol. No, you guys have, have told me, and that third step to me, in a sense, is, is saying, to, you have redirected me when I get to AA. You have turned me. I, I, before I got here, I tried with all my might to do some things. Sometimes I tried with all my might to not drink. Sometimes I tried with all my might to not drink too much. Sometimes I tried with all my might not to drink tonight or, or, or to, ma- to somehow use every ounce of willpower, good intention, firm resolve that I had to, to come at my problem head on. Sometimes it was about acting differently, even sober. As Bob said, it was news to me that I had alcoholism even when I wasn't drinking. But I kept coming at my problem head on, and you guys went, don't. You, you can't. That's where lack of power is your dilemma. Lack of power is not my problem. Just my personal opinion. The fact that I don't have power is not my problem. It's the fact that I act like a guy would act if he had power. It's the fact that I keep trying to do something I can't do. 
And you guys say, so, so a dilemma, by the way, is, is I looked it up after 18 years sober. I didn't want to rush into anything. And, and, it, and, uh, uh, and one of the descriptions of the dilemma was a problem with two equally unacceptable solutions. So my dilemma, lack of power is a dilemma. I don't have power. And I don't like the idea of what you're suggesting I do to get power. I've got a problem I can't solve. You've got a solution I don't want or I'm afraid of or don't understand or don't think is available to me. But you tell me, quit fighting your problem. Redirect your willpower. Redirect everything toward the solution. Don't fight the problem. Embrace the solution. That's the proper use of the will. It says that in the 12 and 12 in the third step. It says it in the big book at the 11th step. This is the proper use of the will. So I'm landing here, and this is how I land. I think about the way the book's talking. This is the way I'm supposed to land. This is the way I come ashore at the 10th step. I'm, the, the first nine steps have produced this effect, and now I am just trying to, to, to maintain, to continue this, to enlarge and grow this spiritual relationship uh, with a higher power. So I've got to keep looking for any new mistakes as I go along. Just this week, I was talking with Bob at, at breakfast, but just this week, uh, my wife asked me a question, something that was really important to her, went right over my head. And I heard her, and I don't see it. And one of the reasons I didn't see it was because I wasn't stopping to check for ticks. I wasn't asking myself the question. I was an extreme example of self-will run riot, though I usually don't think so. Sometimes I'm self-will on purpose, you know. I just load up and go. <laughs> but I'm my most dangerous when I am absolutely unaware that self-will is driving the boat. And that self is my problem. Once I quit drinking, self is my problem. God is the solution. Self, the problems of the alcoholic arise from within. So my problems are internal. They're not external. They look external lots of times. My sponsor, Frank, used to say, it ain't them, Steve-O. I'd call him. I'd say, Frank, today it looked a lot like them. It was cleverly disguised as them today. Because I think that the solution, because when I think my problem is external, I think the solution to my problem is resolving my external circumstances to my satisfaction. And that will bring about peace of mind. And I will continue to say it is much easier for me to get peace of mind when you cooperate. So I, so I still, it believes me, when, when circumstances in my life are good, I tend to do a little better. But I was walking into a meeting and I, I was... I had work stuff going on for a long time. Well, I, I had non-work stuff going on for a long time and not getting paid stuff that went along with that. And, and, and life was kind of felt challenging to me because I decided it was. And uh, I'm sitting in a meeting, but, but now I, I had hit this really good space in, in spite of these circumstances. I'm sitting in a meeting, I uh, got there a little early, and nobody was sitting to my left or to my right, which may say something about me. But... Uh, uh, <laughs> Sooner or later, a guy came and he sat on my left. He said, he said, Steve, he said, how you doing, man? Just a casual hello. How you doing? I said, man, I am doing great. Thank you for asking. 
And I, was, I said, I, don't, I believe that I'm about as, as comfortable and, and at peace uh, as we sit here tonight as I've been in a good while. Thanks. And a few minutes later, another guy came in, sat down on my right. He said, uh, Steve, how's it going? Man, I went, oh, it ain't going worth a damn, man. I said, the job thing, the, 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 the money thing, my kid thing, you know. And, and, and this guy's looking at me like I got three heads. And, uh, and I said, look, man, you asked me how I'm doing, and he asked me how it's going. And those are two different questions. And sometimes, far too often, how I'm doing and how it's going are directly connected. But you have taught me in a perfect world they do not have to be connected. That how I'm doing does not have to be attached to how it's going. When I can be free of the bondage of self. Because my problems aren't even what I think they are. I think, I think it was Katie maybe that touched on it and Bob today as well. My problems aren't what I think they are. My problems aren't my problems. My problems are that I've decided my problems are problems. My problem is that I, I, have, I have labeled it a problem. So I am now stuck. I have painted myself into my own corner. My problems are self-inflicted. And what if it was just okay? I'll tell a quick story and go on to... I can just pretend that the steps are interconnected because our book says they are, right? It says taken separately, prayer, meditation, and self-examination are quite useful, but, but when logically interwoven, they form an unshakable foundation for living. Unshakable. So when I, when I, when I put this stuff all in the pot and stir it together, man, that, now, I, now I got some, some glue. I got something that's really working, that's substantive. And uh, uh, so I went to a conference a few years ago in Toronto. We took a little break for lunch. And uh, uh, this will be my Zen moment for the, for the conference here. And uh, uh, we break for lunch, and, and we're ordering lunch. And, and uh, I ordered a cheeseburger, and, and uh, the guy next to me ordered a club sandwich, and then everybody ordered. And a little while later, they brought our food, and, uh, uh, and they brought me a cheeseburger, and they brought the guy next to me a cheeseburger. And he started eating his cheeseburger, and I said, man, I thought you ordered a club sandwich. And he went, I did, but they brought me a cheeseburger. I said, brother, you don't have to live like that. I said, I said we can get you a club sandwich. And I'm calling people over, you know. And he said, hey, Steve, man, I'm good. I'm, I'm good with the cheeseburger. And, 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 and understand, he wasn't saying, he, he wasn't just eating the damned old cheeseburger because that's what life does. He, he was perfectly content with his cheeseburger. Now, it would have been okay for him to say, you know what, ma'am, I, I ordered a club sandwich. Would you mind getting me one? And, and they would have, and that would, there's nothing wrong with that, and that would have been fine. But wasn't his life simpler because he was okay with the cheeseburger? And I live my life on a regular basis ordering a club sandwich, getting a cheeseburger, and it ain't okay. <laughs> and what our literature says about that is that living a life of unmet demands will leave me in a state of continual disturbance. And that this is not a life in Alcoholics Anonymous of having my demands met, it's a life of lessening my demands of being more and more comfortable under today's set of circumstances. And it's perfectly okay. There are a lot of things that I hope and aspire to in my life. I just don't want to wait till they happen to be okay. 
Because what, what happens to me is I realize that I spend most of my life getting ready to have a good day. When? When this, you know, and, and why, we talk about a day at a time all the time in Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I first hear a day at a time, it's about me enduring this day. I can, I can tough it out today. I can take anything for a day. I can endure a day. But you guys are teaching me to embrace a life where I can live this day where I can live one day at a time under this set of circumstances, as I am, as you are, as it is? Or is it always going to be too hot outside, too cold, it's too crowded, there's too much traffic? I mean, you know, cheeseburger instead of club sandwich. I mean, what is it? And I don't even know that I'm walking around with this list of unwritten demands unless I'm paying attention, unless I'm doing some self-examination. And seeing where these things are showing up in my day. When it says in the book over around the inventory and, and, and the, the pages that uh, Katie was talking about today, it says right before I start out on this resentment inventory, it says being convinced that self in its various manifestations is what had defeated us, we looked for its common manifestations. This says resentment's the number one offender. Being convinced that self is what has defeated me. Am I convinced? And then I want to look for its common manifestations. And in steps 10 and 11, I'm continuing to look for its com- Where did self show up today? Where did it happen? It's like an autopsy. You know, I think my inventories look like an autopsy because I, I watch CSI. You know how that goes. It's, uh, you know, there's a, a dead body. And in uh, uh, fact, this guy was driving over a bridge. The car crashed off the bridge, went down in the ravine. When it hit the ravine... It, it exploded into flames, and now here you got this badly mangled from the crash, burned from the fire body that is clearly dead. But the CSI team takes him back to the lab. All external evidence would imply the crash or the fire killed him. But they go in. And they discover he had a heart attack, which caused the crash, which caused the fall, which caused that. And so you're telling me to go look, look for the real cause of death, Steve. I know the, I, in fact, we won't even argue about the external circumstances, real or imagined. But are you willing to go in and look for self? Did you show up? Did selfishness, self-centeredness show up in a way that you didn't even recognize? Are you willing to really ask the question? And i got to say, often the answer is no, I'm not. Often, you know, because it, it, it Bob says all the time, and he said it the first time that I heard it in 1989, I'm six months sober. I'm listening to a Bob B. tape. I tell him it was an eight track. But he said, if there's a problem I'm unwilling to have, I'll have it forever. That's still true. If I can't own it, if I can't spot it, admit it, correct it, as the tense up suggests, and I'm stuck with it. Then I land over here at the, you know, so now I'll just chat a little bit about my experience with the 11th step. Because all of this, to me, these do begin, the numbers begin to fall off of me, have, of me living this spiritual life. The numbers aren't unimportant. The sequence of the steps are not unimportant. But pretty soon, and even it's, it's there around the 11th step that it says that, that this becomes a working part of the mind. That now I am more naturally doing what was unnatural to me when I got here as a result of a psychic change 
that is limited to to a, a daily reprieve. But what happens around the 11th step, it suggests that, I, that, that in the 10th step, I started reacting sanely normally around alcohol. The 11th step is now I'm encouraged to ask God for the first time to give me some direction. Almost all the prayers prior to, to getting to the 11th step, as I see them, are me asking God for power uh, to do something that I can't do. In the 11th step, I'm beginning to ask for, for direction and for power. And I'm asking God to divorce my thinking from selfish, self-pitying, dishonest motives. Take, let's take this stuff which clouds my vision. I can't see things as they really are. But what if I wasn't afraid? What if I wasn't selfish? What would this look like? How would I, how would I live this life? As Bob said, what if I really let go? What would that look like? So I'm asking God to divorce my thinking from this bondage of self. Take all of those things that have held me hostage. Pride, envy, jealousy, sloth. You know, I, it's embarrassing to say that one of my biggest defects of character is, is I'm just lazy. And I would prefer to have a lust problem. Uh, 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 I mean, it's just more fun to talk about. And... and uh, uh, because lazy is just such a weenie problem, but it's just, you... but that's what I'm stuck with, you know. I got some other minor defects, but, uh... you know, and, 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 and so can, but what if I wasn't burdened by this bondage of self, by my human frailty? See, I'm never going to be free of all of those things. I'm never going to be absent these things. But every now and then I can get the swelling down on them enough to be able to see life as it really is and not be motivated. You know, those motives, so those things which push me into action. Fear will push me into action. Greed will push me into action. All of those things will determine how I act because I'm prisoner to them. But what if I can get them down to their right size because all of my defects of character are just God-given instincts gone awry? And our book says that the measure of this defect is the measure between God's intended use and my misuse. So I'm always going to be somewhere on, on, on the scale. But can I just get back here sometimes long enough? And if, and if through that prayer and through asking God to remove those things to do what I can't do and take a look at my day ahead, it says I can begin that my thought life will be placed on a higher plane. And I can begin to trust my thinking in that day that perhaps I'll begin to have an intuitive thought or idea. And it says, I come to rely upon it. And then it tells me, by, and, and Steve, by the way, when you rely upon it, you're going to make some huge mistakes. That you're going you're to mistake your voice for intuition. That intuitive voice implies that it comes from somewhere other than my intellect. I did not create the intuitive voice. It, I have cleared, the steps are clearing those things away that let me begin to hear that intuitive voice. Not coming through the prism of that fear and self-centeredness and selfishness. And I can begin to hear and see this. And, and, and what would that look like, you know? And so I begin to, can I, can I listen to that voice? And I'll tell you what happens to me today more often, not, at least as much as not, is, is when I got here, that thing you guys, we always say to each other, is, hey, just, Steve, just uh, whatever you're going to do, whatever your first thought is, just do the opposite. That's a pretty good plan for a guy like me when I get to Alcoholics Anonymous. But if I've been here a long time and, every t- and my first thought continues to always be a bad thought, I, 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 might not, I might still have the alcoholic mind. 
But it says, I've got this intuitive voice, and I come to rely upon it. And what happens is I'll hear the intuitive voice, and I'll shout it down. I'll shout it. Pride and fear will shout it down. I go, I can't do that. I was on a plane headed out to, uh, um, I was going to uh, Canada again. I guess most of my worst stuff's ever happened to me was in Canada. And, uh, 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 but I was headed, I was going to a conference in Canada. And I was really excited about going. It was really, it was, re- it was a really big conference, which I thought made me a really big deal, which is, uh, 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 so, so now I, I am, I, I've got these things that are self is showing up. Now get on this little, as I'm going to the, uh, uh gate area in the Nashville airport, there's a, uh, um, a woman and, and holding an infant child, and she's just crying inconsolably. And, and, uh, 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 but I go on and get on this little, you know, 50-passenger jet or so, regional jet, whatever size that is. And, and we're on there, and, and a flight attendant comes on and says, there's a young woman out here with her infant son. Her brother has been, in a, has been critically injured in a car wreck in Detroit. We were flying to Detroit before going to Toronto. Critically injured in a car accident in Detroit. Would anyone be willing to give up their seat? Uh, so she can uh, get there. And intuitively, immediately, my voice said, sure. I mean, my inside voice said, sure. <laughs> but I thought, but then I started thinking about it. And, and perf- I said, well, wait a minute, these people bought my plane ticket. There's going to be cost if I don't go. You know, my goodness, what will they do if I don't show? Uh, uh, this whole thing could unravel. Uh, 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 and I'm thinking, and my mind is spinning, and I'm trying to do, I, I'm rationalizing because our, our book calls rationalization, back in one of the personal stories, she calls it a, providing a socially acceptable explanation for socially unacceptable behavior. So I'm trying to give myself a good enough reason not to get off this plane. While I'm thinking about it, they closed the door and nobody got off. And for that whole weekend, I'm carrying that. And I'm standing up at that conference like I'm standing up here. And what was clear to me is the man they thought they invited would have gotten off that airplane. Because, see, I'd rather come someplace and talk about spiritual principles than actually act on them in the firing line of life. When it shows up, give me a week or two to sort through that, I probably would have, you know, I probably would have ended up letting her have my ticket magnanimously. I would have leaked word that I did it, and uh, 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 there might possibly have been a mention in, uh, uh, you know, Box 459 or the Grapevine, and uh, uh, I've got some headshots I could have sent in. Uh, uh, you know, give me that time, and I might, but what about when life is fired at point blank range, and, and my resp- when my response is, is, I wasn't up to the task that day, yet intuitively I knew what to do. So over time, you're teaching me to be intuitive. So this 11 step suggests, and that's the word it uses, prayer and meditation. And uh, uh, I, I used to use the phrase that I struggle with meditation. Uh, I would have told you and passed a polygraph that I struggle with meditation. And about 13 years ago, I was going to a conference and... Uh, uh, Howard P. was going to be there, and Howard's, a, uh, those of you who know him, is a devoted practitioner of, of meditation. And uh, my friend Danny said, you should talk to Howard about that. So I got there, and I saw Howard, and I, I didn't know Howard very well at the time. I'd met him a couple of times, but I said, Howard, I, I'm struggling with meditation. 
So those of you, so you know, I was now right in Howard's wheelhouse. I mean, he was excited and, and rubbed his hands together. He went, oh, Steve. He said, let's go to my room. And uh, uh, we go to his room and, and we get in there and he went, he went, okay, what are you doing now? And I says, well, I'm really not doing anything now, Howard. And uh, he went, oh, I see. He says, he says, your problem's not technique, it's commitment. You're not struggling with meditation. You're not meditating. <laughs> My struggle wasn't with meditation. My struggle was with discipline. My struggle remains with discipline. And discipline, on the surface, the sound of the word discipline seems, seems punitive and, and seems punishing. But that's not what it means at all. This discipline, it is, it is a, a discipline. You, you practice a discipline. Martial arts is a discipline. And Howard says what you've got to do is create the time. What happens in that space and time, that's a different, that's a different matter. But are you willing to create the time? And I, and I still, I don't struggle with meditation at all, but I struggle with discipline. But the great news for me around the 11th step, and because the other thing, I become very uncomfortable, you know, and, and you could, boy, I, nothing, Bob mentioned earlier uh, about the comparisons we make. And, uh, and, of course, my feelings were hurt when he said it because he said he's liable to compare himself uh, 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 to Peter or to Katie. And I'm thinking, wait, what about me, man? <laughs> Clearly, you're not concerned about that comparison, but... Uh, 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 but I come, I come to some place like this, and I listen to these guys talk. And, 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 you know, by Saturday afternoon, I'm thinking, man, I am the worst AA member that ever drew a breath. I'm nowhere close to these guys. But see, we get here, we're at our best. The, the good news for me is I know the people at this table. And they are just like the people at this table and that table and that table. And that is the good news. And when I, hear, when I hear you talk, sometimes it sounds like a guy like me or the folks here, or when you're telling your tale, it sounds like a guy like me knew what was going on when it was happening. And, man, I didn't. I was lost. So what's happened today, A, is you've given me a design for living. You've given me a true north. You've given me a set of spiritual principles to guide my path. I waver off of it all the time. Here, I will say that, that, that I, my execution and my commitment to the steps of AA has wavered over time. But my belief that AA and these 12 steps are where I belong and where I want to be has never wavered. And there is so much comfort in that. It is, it is so much better to question yourself around a group of people that you have no question about. It is so much better to question myself in a fellowship and, and in a program that I know is spiritually ideal, but you shared with me my first day, I'm going to come nowhere near perfect adherence to these principles. The point is, am I willing to grow along spiritual lines? And as others have implied, that, that growth is not a race. That is not me, me trying to grow in comparison to your growth. 
How am I doing? I like to get a little bit better. I'm encouraged when I take that inventory, that end of day review that's in the 11th step, not to fall into morbid reflection, for I will minimize my usefulness if I do. It says, if I have fallen prey to one of these, one or many of these manifestations of self, I ask God's forgiveness. I see what corrective measures can be made and turn my thoughts to what he would have me be. Don't, but, but I'm a guy that will go in the fetal position and suck my thumb for a week. And that is, that is the self-obsession. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous and, and, and you suggested to me, and our literature suggested to me that, I, that, that if I'm alcoholic, I may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience can conquer. And I'm not interested in a spiritual experience. I'm afraid of it. I went through my book my first year sober. The, I, I got hung up on language. See, that's why I try so hard not to get hung up on language today, mine or yours. Because I was not willing to have a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening. I wouldn't say the word God. I wouldn't hold hands and say the Lord's Prayer. I'd step back from the circle. Guy said, Steve, why are you doing that? I said, I don't want to be a hypocrite, you know. And and I was earnest as I could be. I said, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I'm not just going to hold hands and and sing Kumbaya with the rest of the campers just because that's what you guys are doing. And this guy had heard that confessional four-step that included infidelity and, and included stealing time and money, included being drunk at the hospital the, uh, when my daughter was born, included a host of things. And he said, but hypocrisy, that's where you draw the line, huh? <laughs> yeah. uh, uh. He said, that, that's impressive. Uh, uh. He said, I got good news and bad news for you. And, uh, and I said, I, okay, I'll play. But I knew I felt I was being condescended to. And, and uh, I said, you know, what's the bad news? He said, the bad news is hypocrisy is way down your list of problems. And you might ought to address them in the order in which they will kill your ass. And I said, what's the good news? And he said, the good news is there's room for another hypocrite in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, I'm as pleased about that today as I was then, by the way. But it freed me up to move a little bit. I went through my book, and I blacked out everywhere it said spiritual awakening or, or spiritual uh, experience. Blacked it out with my sponsor's permission. My book looked like a CIA-redacted document. But I wrote above the blacked-out part, personality change. Profound alteration and reaction to life. Because I was more comfortable with that language that was in Appendix 2. And Frank said, said, hell, Steve, I don't, care, you know, I don't care what you call it. I want you to have it. This spiritual experience. Put, I don't, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. He says, take the actions. I'm, I'm unconcerned about the label. And I'm hung up on the label I'm putting on it. I don't want to say the word God because I, I, I don't think that I mean what you mean when you say God. And if I say God, you're going to think I mean what you mean when you say God. And I don't want you to think that. <laughs> I told people what I didn't believe about God for, you know, for a few months in AA. Same guy pulled me aside. Steve, good news. He was just full of good news. And uh, 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 good news, we don't care what you don't believe. 
See, I've spent all my time saying what I didn't believe. He said, decide what you do believe and act like a guy would act if he believed. He says, you're free to not believe anything you don't want to believe in AA. But decide what you do believe. And that was my problem when I realized I had no anchorage to any set of permanent values. So I didn't know how to grab hold of this guy. So finally, I found a conception that works for me. And it was in We Agnostics, and, and, and it says that uh, uh, no one can fully define or comprehend that power which is God. That's comforting to me. Because what we do is spend a lot of time appropriately doing just what our books suggest we do, sharing with each other how we establish a relationship with God. We spend a lot of time talking about a spiritual experience that defies description. Our book says it's indescribably wonderful. But we are, we're encouraged to do our best to articulate my experience of that. And you do the same thing, and so I'm now no longer upset if they sound different. And then our book says that deep within every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. In the last analysis, it is only there that he may be found. Bob touched on it today. It is, it is, it, I don't, I, it's my experience that it feels like to me that God is deep within. And it feels like to me that these steps are relieving me of the bondage of self, which is blocking me off from that, from that authentic me, from that divine spark within that allows me to be who I am. I think Katie said something about us not being able to have a true partnership with another human being. How can I have a true partnership if I'm not bringing an authentic person to the relationship? If I can't bring who I really am to it, then there's no way we can have a real relationship. And I'm trying to be freer of those things that are blocking me off from being who I really am. And that's a, well, I got to check for ticks on that every day. That, that stuff reapply, reattaches itself to me all the time. But, but every now and then, I, the, the bonds aren't gone, but they're loosened. They're loosened. Because it says, look out, because this new relationship that I'm trying to build and enlarge upon can be obstructed, obscured by pomp, by worship of other things, and by calamity. And pomp is a reemergence of self and pride and ego. And worship of other things is anything that I that I set above that my relationship with that power when it when it's you know money property prestige the job what you think of me oh my god what you think of me and really what I think you think of me now I'm almost always wrong about what I think you think of me but tell me later what you think of me <laughs> if you only if you think highly of me and then calamity that can be real. It can be death of a loved one. It could be financial ruin. We went bankrupt at 10 years sober. Uh, took our cars, our home. I called Frank. I said, Frank, they just, they just took our cars. He went, no, Steve, they took their cars. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> but calamity can be when I get home, and, and I recorded some programs on the DFR, uh, on DVR when I left, and if they didn't record properly, that can be a calamity. <laughs> now, it seems trivial to you, but a calamity is anything I've decided can't be happening to me. And, and in AA, more and more, I'm, I am more and more 
open to more and more things happening to me and that not interfering with my relationship with this higher power. And then it says, as I draw near to him, he will disclose himself to me. The way I draw near to him is to draw near to you. Since God is deep within every man, woman, and child, that's just the choice I've made. That's the point of view that I have taken. That becomes my connection point rather than a separation point. That is now my connection. And then there's a little poem that my Nashville used to recite and, and uh, when he became ill. This little poem had described my experience in AA more clearly than I've done for the last hour. And uh, uh, I asked Mo if he would mind if, uh, if when he was gone, if I closed my talks uh, with the verse to that poem. And, and he, said, he said, if you think it'll help another drum. And that's what Mo was all about. He's the best AA member. He loved AA as much as anybody I'd ever met. And more importantly, this is, may seem like a distinction without a difference, but I don't think it is. He loved alcoholics more than anybody I'd ever met. And a guy, I can show up at AA, and about an hour and a half later, I love AA, but I'm not too crazy about alcoholics. You know, particularly the ones that, ooh, don't, don't let the drinking guy come to my meeting. He's really, you know, we, well, I got some high-minded stuff I need to talk about, and he's over there throwing up or, uh, or interrupting us or something. But the, the, the poem that, that Mo always recited was, I sought my God, my God I could not see. I sought my soul, my soul eluded me. I sought my fellow man and found all three. See, in Alcoholics Anonymous, that's been my experience. I was here chasing something I couldn't find. There was a God I can't get my arms around. There's a power I can't describe or comprehend. But, but when you guys open yourselves up to me and when you allow me this opportunity to open myself up to you, this power shows up in a way that I can't explain and acts in my life in a way that, I, that, that is indescribably wonderful. So thank you so much for giving me your time and attention. Let's close them in with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, 